Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Drew Johnson, a professor and author of Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. And today we talk about the Bible and the nature of philosophy. Drew Johnson is an associate professor of biblical and theological studies at King's College in New York City. He's also the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought, editor at The Biblical Mind, host of The Biblical Mind podcast, and co-host of the OnScript podcast. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started on the path of studying Hebraic philosophy as well as epistemology as a biblical scholar? Yeah, thank you for having me here, first of all. It's really part of—I was really interested in science, honestly, in college, and I was planning on being a research psychologist, and I was really interested in kind of research design and statistical analysis. That was the part that really appealed to me. And the psychology too. People who come from dysfunctional families usually just like psychology in general because it helps them explain some things. And uh, when I ended up going to seminary instead at the advice of a person who led me to Christ a few years earlier. And so I went to seminary not really knowing anything about seminary and having my doors blown open every single day. And I realized that Lots of the issues I was most concerned with were actually addressed in Scripture. As I was learning how to read Scripture in both the Hebrew and Greek, I, I you know, I was slowing down and reading a little bit more carefully. Um, I thought they really care about how we understand the world. You know, do this in order that you know this, or as I like to point out now, the central drama of the Garden of Eden is not a murder or embezzlement, or it, it's actually a it's a ritual slash knowledge crime. It was in order to understand something differently than they presently understood it. So I think the scripture itself puts some epistemology front and center um, and, and says, this is the issue we are going to be talking about. And then as I did my PhD years, you know, almost 10 years later, looking at the question of what, what the scripture think about knowledge, how it works, what's important, even I was shocked at how often it returns to this issue of who knows what and how do they know it and what are proper and better ways of knowing and what are worse ways of knowing. Um, I think Scripture is very savvy. It's it's an intellectual world unto itself, but it really lets you know early and often there is you are always going to come to know something. This is an old academic trope. It's not whether you're going to know something. It's whether you're going to know the world more truly or whether you're going to have faulty or false assumptions. So, so I found that very refreshing, and that's what got me excited. And like all people, I just— chased what kept me excited and went down that road as far as I was allowed to. And people just kept on letting me write, you know, dissertations and then books and stuff on the topic. So I just went for it because nobody else was doing it. So, or a few other people were doing it, I should say. Well, that's, it's, I have a similar story in some senses. I came to seminary not knowing what I didn't know. And so it's like every single day my mind was being blown and I felt incredibly overwhelmed because I never knew what was happening or what was coming next. 
Um, and so in many ways, it's kind of a similar kind of intellectual path in many ways. Obviously, you're much further down the road than I am. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with some of the basic boundaries and kind of understandings of philosophy. Um, I was telling you, one of your friends and one of my former, or one of my professors at Southern Seminary, uh, we had Dr. Jonathan Pennington on to talk about Jesus, the great philosopher, his latest book. Um, it was a really fascinating conversation about the nature of philosophy and how it's connected really to everyday life. Can you help us to understand the importance of philosophy in Christian thought and why it's key for Christians to engage the scriptures philosophically as well as theologically? Well, first, I don't know if I would separate theology from philosophy that broadly. I would put them on a continuum um, where we can think, you know, move the continuum over, okay, we're more theologically, more philosophical. I'm not even sure that's really helpful in the history of philosophy. I mean, the history of philosophy and, and all the way up to the Enlightenment, I think it's fair to say it's really a history of theology, right? So even Galileo, when he's asserting that it's not a geocentric world, but it's a heliocentric world, but he still insists on circular orbits of the planets because of this theological idea of Aristotle's, that circles are the perfect shape, they're the perfect form. So even in you know one of the great scientific discoveries um, and paradigm shifts, you still had Greek ideas, and they weren't purely philosophical in the sense of they were devoid of any meaning and just pure reason. They were they were basically theological assertions that were still interfering uh, with the scientific endeavor of, of what was going on in, in the cosmos. So I wouldn't put theology and philosophy too far away from each other, although I think there it, it makes sense to talk about when we're working more in a philosophical mode or more in a theological mode. With that said— you know, I would just say one of my favorite passages uh, in Luke is when Jesus chastises a bunch of farmers and says, look, you see the clouds and you interpret it correctly that it's going to rain and then it happens. And you see the winds coming up from the south out of Egypt um, and you say, oh, it's going to be hot. And so it happens. You hypocrites. I love it. And Jonathan Pennington has taught me to pay attention to this word hypocrites. If you've had him, I'm sure he did too. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret you know, the times and the seasons, but you don't know how to interpret this present time. And in doing that, I think what he's doing is calling back to the Torah tradition of the goal in Deuteronomy 4 is to make a wise and discerning nation, not make wise and discerning individuals, but to make a wise and discerning nation of people who see the world more truly. They see reality more truly. They understand some of the inner functions and, and the meaning of what happens around us in the ways that others won't have unless they participate in that system alongside Israel or get included into Israel. And so when I see Jesus not chastising elites and scribes and Pharisees, but chastising just agrarian subsistence farmers up in the Galilee for not applying the skills of discernment uh, and wisdom to understand not what is in front of them, but the nature of the thing that they're looking at, which I think is at least one definition of philosophy that works, is you're trying to understand the nature of how things work versus, you know, I'm trying to understand the nature of chairs rather than the chair that I'm sitting on right now. What is it that makes a chair a chair? I, I think you see the prophets doing exactly this. This is what you're seeing, but you need to understand the nature of this thing. You need to understand the nature of justice. You need to understand the nature of ethical behavior and why it's in, uh, it's important in your relationship to God and others. And when I took, you know, what I would call atheistic analytic philosophy seminars, lo and behold, first discussions we're having is what is the nature of justice, right? And the, you know, the Greeks. And, the, and I mean, I remember somebody said I've heard Christians philosophers say. You know, philosophy begins when the Greeks start asking, what is the nature of justice? And I'm like looking around the room going, are, are you serious when the Greeks ask the question? 
Um, there was a very long and storied and better discourse on the nature of justice in the Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, a thousand, well, at least centuries before the Greeks, if not close to a thousand years. Um, so I don't think it's a choice. I think God is actually calling us all to be wise and discerning children, adults, foreigners, native-born Israelites, insiders outside, men, women. He's calling us all to this wisdom and discernment, and then he holds us accountable when we don't do it. You hypocrites, you know you know how to discern things, but you're not applying it uh, across the board. So you just mentioned a couple other ways that typically people go about philosophical discourse and thinking through some of the nature of reality, et cetera. So what prompted you to write on a Hebraic approach? Like why write this book? What was the story behind it? What kind of prompted you to spend so much time on a project like this? Yeah, so this is this is to my shame. It, it was a really good friend of mine who's an Israeli philosopher named Yoram Hazoni. Um, he's a good friend of mine, and he just kept on saying, like, what's your next project? And um, I'm like, oh, I'm going to maybe work on the metaphysics of time in the Hebrew Bible, you know. <laughs> I don't know, even know why I thought that. He's like, no, 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 no. This is how it is with Yoram. He says, no, no, no. You've put pieces out there, but, you know, your epistemology, your views of knowledge— but you haven't given us the grand scheme. How do you think this all fits together? We need to hear it. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and o- only under friendly pressure from him did I uh, actually write this book. And in fact, I had a research fellowship at uh, Logos Institute in St. Andrews where I wrote this book. And I was supposed to be writing on the metaphysics of time. And I had to go back to them and ask them, hey, can I actually write like a basic argument for the Bible as a philosophical tradition? And uh, fortunately, they agreed, and um, I think it didn't come out too badly. But it was something I was afraid to do because it's a big it's a big claim. And if you read the whole book, which, um, I mean, not everybody's going to slug it through the whole book, but if you read the whole book, I try to be a bit sheepish and say, like, look, I know I don't have this all figured out, but I'm trying to hand over a tool that will uh, – where people who are more expert in these individual places will help me understand where I've gotten it wrong and where maybe it's, maybe it's on to something truly. Well, I thank God for your friend kind of pushing you along because I do think this is a really helpful kind of maybe even first step in that sense since you want to be a little sheepish about it. It's to say, I think this is a really good tool that you've handed over to the church and even kind of the wider philosophical movements to help think through kind of what is a biblical approach to philosophy and what is this biblical approach to the way of life. In the book, you you state that your goal is to demonstrate that the biblical literature has a distinctive philosophical style that's opposed to a lot of the other prevailing systems of our day. So what do you mean by philosophical style? I think that word or that language might trip some people up. And then what are some of these kind of common philosophical projects or movements that are often associated with the Bible or that we read the Bible in light of uh, that you tried to demystify and help us to see what is the Hebraic tradition? So the style question, it really, that was a direct response to, I, I did the typical thing where I was like, let's just find a good working definition of philosophy that most people agree on, and then I'll just see how what's going on in the Hebrew Bible stacks up. And as I went looking around, I realized that everybody has a different definition of philosophy. Every philosopher does, and they are not reconcilable to each other. I mean, some of them have like exclusively different views of what they're doing in philosophy, and and actually, it kind of dropped off into some debates there where people are really vigorously arguing about what is it that philosophy contributes to the world. So I kind of sidestepped that by saying, like, look, okay, we don't need to know what philosophy is, and I'm certainly not the person to be defining that. But we can just say, when I read something, if you, so if you just handed me a text from Hume's Treatise on Human Understanding, after so many pages, I'd be like, okay, I don't know who this is, but this is certainly British 
I can tell by the way he spells connection with an X. He's talking about, you know, certain ideas of understanding and observation. This sounds very British empiricist, 18th century probably, I'm going to guess, right? And whatever it is in me that figures that out, it's because I recognize there's a style to the argumentation. There's there are certain convictions, that certain things that this author just thinks are true. And there's a certain way of reasoning through the nature of human understanding there that I go, okay, this is a treatise, which means it's got, you know, treatises are fairly new invention as far as literature goes. And so that only happens in a certain time period written here. And I think you could say the same thing grossly of a, a Greco-Roman style over there, although there's a lot of variation in the Greco-Roman style. I try to create a block caricature that is is a caricature, intentionally a caricature. And I think there is a caricature as well of a Hebraic style that you find in the Torah that basically gets carried through through the prophets and the wisdom literature or, or whatever you want to call the poetic literature and into the New Testament. And that's what I try to show in, in that when you hand me a piece of text, I can basically say, okay, he's using Greco-Roman terms like Paul, but he really seems like he's actually doing something different than, than all the other Greco-Roman philosophers that I'm reading. Even though he's using their terms and kind of imbibing in some of their concepts, he really seems to be arguing in a very different way, appealing to narratives and appealing to ideas and assuming things about us as an audience um, that others don't. So it's, it seems to be, you know, whatever it is, this is not strictly Greco-Roman philosophy. This is not Stoicism in some kind of bare form. It's something else. And so I just tried to identify what I call the genetic markers of that style. What are the things that, you know, say we put it in the circle called Hebraic philosophical style, and what are the things that would move it out of the circle? So I guess to dig in a little bit there, what are some of those genetic markers? What is kind of the general overview of what you deem as Hebraic philosophy or a Hebraic philosophical way of life? Yeah, so I think one of them is not, it's actually more ancient Near Eastern, um, but the next one makes it Hebraic. Uh, one of them is what I call a pointillist or pixelized, To or, or if you watch The Office, it's the Robert California style of answering a question. Is let me give you a story and let me give you another story. Let me give you a piece of poetry. And, and what I'm doing is actually answering the question, you know, what is justice? I'll give you five stories. I'll depict justice. I'll depict injustice. Or if you want to think about Genesis, what does a proper sexual relationship look like? Well, let me tell you what it looks like in creation. Let me give you a bad example. Let me give you another bad example. Let me give you a really horrible example. Let me, you know, and then when we get to legal reasoning, let me differentiate proper and improper sexual relationships. And by doing so, they never told me what sexuality is, but they have reasoned with me so that I can discern sexuality in, in new situations that I might not have thought about before, like maybe today, where we think about sexuality very differently than we would have 200 years ago. And so I think it's an apt style. You know, reasoning with somebody through syllogisms, uh, you know, if A and B, then then C, right? Or if Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, Socrates is mortal— in some ways, there's a way in which that's spoon-feeding people the argument. And I think what you see in Hebraic thought is, let me put these things together, and you have to do the work of figuring out how they're connected to one another. But once you have, that actually d develops a sense of discernment in you. It's more than just facts that you figured out. There's actually a way that you now see the world because you figured out how these things are connected. By the way, I would argue that this is what we do in all our best teaching. So medical schools do precisely this. Um, law schools do precisely that, whether you, whether you think the outputs of those are great or not. I think we all like a good lawyer or a doctor when we need one, right, in the right situation. 
scientists all do this. They like, let me give you a situation. Let me give you another situation. Let me now let's talk about this principle and let's see if you can discern that principle across these situations. That's how we get our best sense of discernment and, and knowing. Yeah, and you see that even with uh, Christian ethics, because I think in, in, that's my specialty um, is the study of ethics. And often when people say, well, the Bible doesn't speak to technology, example, is they have to go back and you have to say, well, there are these principles and they kind of come from these stories and we see how this is modeled. And then we kind of can piece those principles and put them together to say, well, this is what the Bible says about technology. And obviously we can get certain things wrong at times. We can be corrected. That's why we need community. We need one another. But we can see this is a kind of a biblical approach to maybe a very modern problem or a modern issue that the Bible isn't directly speaking to. I know you mentioned one thing about Paul. So kind of shifting into the New Testament. So when a lot of people think about Paul, they think of kind of the Greco-Roman kind of Hellenistic type of background, the way he argues, the way he goes about, the language he's using, etc. But you make an interesting case is that he's actually arguing from this Hebraic perspective. Can you dialogue a little bit about that and kind of help us to understand how Paul is using that Hebraic tradition even in a very different context? Yeah, um, and if, if you'll allow me, I'd like to actually not use Paul the recording of Paul's speech in Acts 17, I think, is like the perfect paradigm of that. I mean, I think it's Paul. Some people might quibble as to whether that's what Paul but at least in some essence, it's what Paul says. So he's sitting in, in a room full of Stoics and Epicureans. Now, there's a question as to whether he ever formally studied Greek philosophy. He certainly breathed enough of it that he understood what he's doing. I think you can see that in his epistles as well. But he stands in that crowd at the Areopagus and he began, you know, this is a big opportunity to make the argument. And the argument begins with a, hey, good job on the religion front. Like you figured out that there's this unknown God. Let me declare who this unknown God to you is. He's the one who creates and puts things in times and places. Kind of makes this generalized creational argument. Some of which would have fit with Greco-Roman, even Stoic ideas. Um, some of which would have been a little outside of the box for them. And then when he gets to the cinch, you know, to cinch the sack of the argument, to really reel him in, he ends it by appealing to an action of which they have never heard of, a person whom they've never heard of, a judgment that's coming of which they would not understand, and a resurrection of which they wouldn't metaphysically believe in. And so you'd say like, oh, you were going so well up until that point, Paul. Like you, you're actually making, we could follow you. You know, there's a line of reasoning you seem to be following. And he really ties the conclusion together with that word appointed and this idea he's appointed a time and a season and, and he is going to judge you. He's appointed a day where he's no longer going to overlook, but through a man who's appointed and he's given evidence of this appointment by raising him from the dead, right? And then at that point, everybody's, you know, almost throwing their hands up in the air. Like, what is this? And the most miraculous thing there, I think, or the sign of the Holy Spirit, if you're looking closely, is people saying, we want to hear more, right? Um, because there's no way in which that was an argument in any classical sense, even today, right? If you just, and I did this in the book, is I just, just tried to use some classical logic to outline Paul in Galatians, and you could do it otherwise. And he requires you to supply so many hidden premises, uh, so many missing premises, and so many storylines, and, and, and you know, he has this creationist conviction that um, a lot of people wouldn't agree with, that I don't think there's any way in which you can say he's doing any kind of Hellenistic form of argument. Maybe there's like some slight resemblance to what you see with uh, someone like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, um, some bits of Epictetus. 
But for the most part, he's making arguments that if you map them out are, are, if I can use the word, they're slightly incoherent. Unless you believe that he's creating lines of pictures and images, pixels as I would call them. He's pixelating an idea and expecting you to figure out the network that ties all these ideas together. Uh, and unless he's doing something like that, then that makes sense of what he's doing. And of course, he's going to have little strings of, of logical arguments there. I mean, he's not like he's not entirely co- incoherent. But I think Kevin Rowe says at one point, like, if you're looking for a linear argument, this is this is not the droid you're looking for, right? Like, you need to find another apostle, and, and you're good luck finding one in the New Testament. But there's some way in which the totality of his argument has some logical sense to it, and I think everybody who reads them has a sense of that. Um, but I challenge you to just go actually map out the logic of his arguments, and I think you'll immediately see. He is requiring you to bring more to the game than what he is saying in order to complete his thoughts for him. And that, to me, is a sign he's doing something more Hebraic than he is Hellenistic. Now, I think that's really helpful and kind of a challenge to go back and think about through some of those things. Because I think once we kind of have this overarching framework, it's helpful to go back and then see how that's kind of playing out. And in many ways, how that even changes the way we read Scripture, the way we see these arguments being presented, kind of these principles, kind of as you were talking about, uh, some of these kind of pixelated ideas that we kind of see come together through narrative and through story. One of the things that I really love about you in general um, is that you write on multiple levels. So you write the really kind of heavily academic versions, but as a good teacher, you can also kind of kind of shape it to the audience. So if someone's listening to the podcast and they're wondering, okay, this this all sounds really helpful. I, under, I, I generally understand where you're going. What does this mean for how I read the scriptures? What does this mean for um, how I approach the scriptures, how I think through its arguments, um, and how I kind of pull those things out as I pursue Jesus and become more like him? So what would you say to someone who's saying, I understand all of this generally, but how do I then take some of these things and apply them into my daily life and my daily walk with Christ? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I'm, as a former pastor, I'm always worried about that issue, um, which is why I always write on multiple levels, because if it doesn't reach a church, then I'm not interested eventually. And I hopefully will have a layperson-friendly version of this book coming out uh, eventually. But um, I would say this impacts not only reading Scripture, but the way we preach. I mean, if you think about how much homiletics is really trying to get things all lined up in an order— uh, and again, the TED Talk industry has taken note of this and created a whole industrial complex based on homiletics, essentially, a certain kind of homiletic. I think reading Scripture is going to mean for a lot of people, depending on your understanding of Scripture, it's going to mean what, for my students, I say, you know, gulp, don't sip. Don't take little bites of Scripture. You really need to get in there. Read Matthew four times in a row over the weekend. You will learn more about Jesus by doing that than you will if you read a paragraph a day for the rest of the year, because there's a system of thinking that needs to be held in account together. Um, even preaching, like epistles are sermons. I, sometimes is bothersome that I've gone to church for 20 plus years now as a Christian, and outside of me doing it, I've never heard anybody read an entire epistle in front of the church, which is really distressing Consider that's exactly how they were written to be heard as an entire uh, piece of work. It's Justin, Justin Martyr even says, that's, that's what we do is we listen to these things being read as long as we can stand them, right? Which you're like, oh, I wish he would put a time marker on that. Like, how long was that, you know? And so I think our interaction with Scripture has to, you know, if Robert California is this character of the office who just gives story after story, his are a little more incoherent. But uh, assuming if, if Scripture argues like that, they're going to give you lots of various sides of this multifaceted gem and expect you to kind of discern the gem 
from those various sides, then that means we have to have long and intense encounters with it and listen, hear it out, you know. And that allows us to do that more intensive work, like where maybe we do want to meditate on just a paragraph of Paul and just like get inside his head and think why he said that. But that makes sense when we know what he's doing as a whole, you know. Uh, I would also advise um, really quickly is go to Scripture with a question. What does Scripture – like technology. What does Scripture have to say about technology? And someone might say, nothing. There was no technology. I'm like the biggest technological shift in humanity outside of the computer age happens in Scripture. It's the Iron Age. Um, there's a critique of technology right there in Babel in Genesis 11, possibly before that, but at least there. Uh, Jacques Ellul made a cottage industry on writing on technology in Genesis, right? So if you ask, don't ask what does it have to say about you know, iPhones. Say, what does it have to say about something new entering the world that changes the nature of work and changes the nature of relations between humans? This is something that you write on. And just start working through the, and, and seeing whether the biblical authors think that that's an important question. Because sometimes we might ask questions and you read and you're like, oh, they don't care about this question. I, I'm hung up on this question, but they're not. So something else needs to happen. I think we will all be shocked by how much they have to say about everything that we think about today that we care about. My example is incarceration. I feel like Christians should have things to say about incarceration, at least in the Americas, because we have a serious problem here. But there is no incarceration in Scripture. There's no provision for incarcerating people in the Torah. Uh, the cities of refuge are the closest you get, which is really about due process more than anything else and protecting from vengeance. But certainly the biblical authors and the Torah and Jesus have something to say about how we treat people, how we jail them, how we incarcerate them, how we treat them while they're incarcerated, how do we help them after they're incarcerated. Um, but they're just not going to talk about in terms of incarceration. So we have to ask with the question, how do they think about treating people who've done something wrong, who need to be reconciled to society ultimately? And so, yeah, I think, I think it scripts, the scriptures teach loudly and proudly across these topics, but you have to go to them with a, a well-formed question. Well, I'll ask you one of those questions, especially given your work in epistemology and kind of the understanding of knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge. How do you think the Bible speaks to a lot of the kind of rise of conflicting versions of truth? So we hear about fake news, we hear about conspiracy theories, and a lot of these have epistemological foundations. Obviously, the scripture speaks a lot of knowing, of pursuing truth. I was just reading Titus about the nature of truth and how Paul is encouraging Titus to pursue the truth that God doesn't lie. And so, especially in kind of our modern political and social context, we hear a lot about conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, even within the church. I just saw a recent study just today uh, that came out from LifeWay Research that said about 40, I think it was 46% of pastors polled said that they had heard within the last 30 days someone in their church talking about conspiracy theories, like promoting conspiracy theories within the church. And so, Given your work in epistemology and kind of understanding biblical philosophy, how would you approach that? Yeah, we actually, uh, the Center for Hebraic Thought is getting ready to put out a video on fake news in the Bible, actually exploring this exact issue. And I, I wrote an article for Christianity Today on um, conspiracy theories, which was generated from my encounter in somebody in my church who was like a flat earther, old school biblical one, like the biblical authors believe in a flat earth, therefore we should as well, which I had not run into that view. But so it was it was generated from real encounters with real people who I cared about, who I really thought something's gone wrong here. I would say again, I always take everything back to Genesis, you know, to the beginning, is you actually have an issue of fake news in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes in and says a few things, all of which were true, 
And the narrator is very careful to show you that everything the serpent says is true. Their eyes were opened in that day, and they knew good and evil, and they were like God, and they did not die in that day. Uh, you know, you might want to say, okay, well, death, spiritual, whatever. But what was plainly reported by the serpent actually happened, and the narrator repeats the exact words of the serpent in the, in the following description to show you that the serpent was correct, right? I think Walter Moberly argues this effectively, and it's, it's pretty convincing. So it's not an issue of whether the serpent was right or wrong. It's not an issue of whether what he said was true or not. It's how it was true and how you came to know and the relationship they had with God that should have actually in some way trumped whether they should have taken those actions. So when God says, you know, when God diagnoses what went around the garden, he diagnoses not that this was a lie, not, you know, not you know, the other problem that now they, they know good and evil like one of us. But um, he says, you listen to the wrong voice. That's his diagnosis. Is It's not that the serpent didn't know what he was talking about. In fact, it opens up with, the serpent was the most wise of all the animals that Yahweh Elohim had created, right? So it tells us the guy knows what he's talking about. So the critique from the beginning, and I would say from that point on, including Jesus's critique of his disciples, including the transfiguration where the clouds open and God comes down and says, listen to him is the issue of who do you listen to and whose, whose instructions do you embody determine whether things are going to go well or not from you. And that begins in the Garden of Eden. And Israel is held singularly to that account. If you listen listeningly to the voice of Yahweh your God, I'll cause all of these good things to happen. If you don't, curses will come upon you. Jesus repeats the listen, he who has ears to listen, let him hear, repeats all of this exact same language. So when it comes to knowing the shocker here, I, I don't think it's actually shocking when you think about it. But the shocker is the biblical authors are saying it's not what you see and know that's the issue. You're going to come to see and know things no matter what. The couple came to see and know things, whether they liked it or not. It's not whether you're going to see and come to know things. It's how you do it that's the matter. It's almost like a scientific, you know, like scientists worry much more about the process that yields true results rather than the truth of the results themselves. You see the same sentiment in scripture. Like if you do the right process, it will be truth yielding over time and circumstance what is good and true and right will continually rise to the surface. And that includes the language of truth itself in Scripture. It's not, there is no such thing as absolute truth in Scripture uh, or objective truth. Truth always has to be assessed over time and circumstance, which is why Paul can say, pursue truth, right? Over time and circumstance, keep figuring out and discerning what is true. Or why Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm the objective truth. He says, I'm the, tr the way and the life, right? It's a way of discerning over time and circumstance, seeing what's true. By the way, the over the time and circumstance, I'm stealing this from my friend Yoram Hazoni, who, who gave me that little, little nugget, and he pushes it with, in Scripture, roads are true, reports are true, and tent pegs are true. And the only way in which that makes sense is if over time and circumstance, they do what they ought to be doing. That makes a lot of sense. And we'll make sure to link to that article that you put up at Christianity Today's. I know that's an area I'm doing some work in and thinking through. And so I'd love to kind of piggyback off some of the things you've done and just kind of follow along. One of the things that I want to, we always do on the podcast as we end our time together is talk about some recommended resources. And we do this specifically as folks that want to go a little bit deeper into some of the issues or kind of topics we've, we've touched on today. Obviously, there's so much more that we could have talked about today, digging into not only your work, and epistemology, but even uh, even more into this volume itself about Hebraic philosophy. So 
what are a couple resources, one or two resources that you would recommend for folks if they want to take kind of the next step? Maybe they're intimidated by the larger kind of academic tome that you've written, but something that they want to take a next step to kind of dig in a little bit on some of these important issues. Well, I always recommend uh, my brother from another mother, Yoram Hazoni, his book, uh, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture. So he, he argues from a specifically Jewish perspective. I think he gets some things wrong in the New Testament. We can disagree because we love each other. Um, but that book kind of opens a lot of doors uh, about, and it's it's a readable book and helps you understand, like, where do we get to the way we think about philosophy today? He actually gives a little bit of history and argument in there, but it's a great, great book, uh, even if it's controversial, and I, and I would quibble with him about a lot of the details. Jonathan Pennington, who you've had on, I think everybody should read that Jesus, the Great Philosopher. I think what he's doing there is phenomenal. It's on the right track, and again, it helps you understand why Jesus puts the Hebraic tradition toe-to-toe in conversation with the Greco-Roman tradition, and, and he thinks the Hebraic tradition wins, uh, as does Paul and Peter and Jude and everybody else. I would also recommend, this seems a little on the outside, but my mentor, uh, Esther Meek, she has a book called Longing to Know, which is uh, applying the thinking of Michael Polanyi kind of in a Christian way. And I think for a lot of people, including myself, uh, that book wasn't written when I first read Polanyi, but I wish it was. Um, so it's a really easy way, and it's in a beautifully and artfully written book. Uh, it's very, very nicely written book for lay people like I was when I read it, into this like I think how scripture basically thinks about the world of knowing through the body and the importance of the body and the importance of community. And it's a way of knowing that can affirm everything that we see in scripture and doesn't have to like segment things out or say, well, now we know these things philosophically so we can do more advanced stuff. It can actually affirm the entire intellectual world of the Bible. And I think it's a a must read for most people. No, that's really helpful. I actually have that book on my reading list this semester. Um, So I'll be getting to it here in a month or two myself. I'm really excited. I've heard a lot of really good things about our Esther Meek's work, and so I'm excited to dig into it. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. I really appreciated this conversation. It was really thrilling, and I just appreciate the work that you do, not only at the academic level, but even kind of working down into the pews, working down into the local church itself and seeking to equip us. So I appreciate your work and your ministry. That's seriously an honor uh, just, just to get to talk about this and to have you even pay attention to my work is, is an honor. So, Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As always, you can connect with Dr. Johnson and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.